Hi, I'm Dr. Gemma Newman, also known as the Plant Power Doctor, and I'm your host for the Wellness Edit with Holland and Barrett. In this episode, I was so happy to talk to Dr. Megan Rossi, whose brand new book, Eat More, Live Well, is all about how we can eat more plant-based foods to boost our gut health. I loved this conversation. We shared so much interesting information about gut health. We talked about inflammatory bowel conditions. We talked about bloating, constipation, irritable bowel, and the fascinating link between our gut and our skin and our mental health our heart and so much more what I loved is that she gave us such practical advice uh, in a really interesting way and I really hope that you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed it have a listen hello Megan hey Gemma it's an absolute pleasure to be here Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. I've been following your work for some time. As I mentioned to you before, I I saw a panel discussion that you were on and I was really impressed with all your expertise. I think we need more people like you in this space who know a thing or two about gut health. And I'd say arguably probably one of the most well-known gut health doctors on the planet. (laughs) Thank you. That's a a nice way to start the the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got to big you up. You're brilliant. So I guess, you know, let's start off by asking uh, why, why are you so passionate about this? Where did it all come from for you? Yeah, I mean, good question, because gut health historically wasn't the most sexy of topics. But I actually grew up in a farm in Australia where good gut health was somewhat inherent to my upbringing, you know, playing in the dirt, eating fresh fruit and veg, etc. But actually, my first conscious encounter with the gut was when I just finished studying my nutrition and dietetics degree and sadly lost my grandma to bowel cancer. And my grandma had a really big part in my upbringing. So, it hit me quite hard. And, you know, so I guess my first encounter with the gut was a really negative one. I hated it. And then I started working as a dietitian, both in the hospital setting with all different types of conditions, different cancers, um, mental health issues, weight management issues, etc. But also I was very fortunate to be the nutritionist for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team. And what I found so striking is that despite everyone's very different backgrounds, they're all coming to me complaining of the gut. And I thought, gosh, what is it about this organ? So that's when I decided to embark on a PhD. I thought I owe it to my grandma and to my patients to find out more about this, you know, somewhat um, undiscovered organ. So that was 2010. And yeah, my PhD changed everything for me. So it was looking at pre and probiotics, which I'm sure we'll probably go into. But essentially, it showed me that actually targeting the gut can have very far reaching and surprising benefits. So well outside the guts, not just about gut symptoms, but things like our mental health and our heart health. And it was at that point, I was like, wow, actually, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have hated the gut ever. I just, it was misunderstood. And actually, if we treat it right and respect it, it really harnesses so much power and potential. Wow. What an amazing answer. So it was kind of like initially a love-hate relationship, but then you began to discover the the hidden joys of understanding the microbiome and how that interacts with our gut and how it can affect everything. So you mentioned the heart, you mentioned mental health. I know that skin is really important as well, isn't it? Absolutely. This gut-skin axis is blowing our minds in terms of what we're discovering. And Again, uh, I might be jumping the gun, but I think a really interesting fact is that we have literally billions of bacteria on us like a second skin. So like we've got our gut microbiome, which is the trillions of bacteria within our gut, we've got a skin microbiome and the the gut and the skin bacteria are thought to be interacting despite being in very different parts of the body. 
Wow, that is interesting. So how on earth do the bacteria on our skin in the outside world interact with the bacteria that are in our gut on the inside? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to the chemicals the bacteria in the gut are producing. So when we eat certain foods, things like plant-based foods with the dietary fiber, which essentially human cells can't digest, so it's there's no real purpose for, for humans. But it, what we know about fiber now is actually its purpose is to feed the bacteria within us. So when they, they eat the fiber, they produce a range of different chemicals, uh, some of which then get into our bloodstream and are thought to be expressed in our skin, but also via our immune system. So 70% of the immune system lives in our gut. So our bacteria are thought to communicate with our immune system and then that expressed in our skin as well. Yeah, so many fascinating connections coming through. Oh, there are. I can't wait to dive in and talk a bit more about it. But I also just want to highlight to our audience that Megan's PhD, she said it was the beginning of a fantastic journey of discovery for her. I also want to let you guys know that it won the Dean's Award for Excellence for its contribution to science. So this is this girl knows what she's talking about. <laughs> so getting back to people, you mentioned the Olympic team and how people were sort of struggling with their gut. They were having symptoms. And I know from my GP perspective that I'll see a lot of patients who have gut health issues and sometimes they'll need to be seen by a specialist. Sometimes I'll need to refer them to a gastroenterologist. Sometimes they'll have inflammatory bowel disorders and bowel cancers. But a lot of the time they get sent back to me because serious life-threatening issues have been ruled out but they're still really struggling, primarily with things like irritable bowel syndrome. That is something that I think affects so many people. And I'd love to get a little bit of insight from you so that our audience can feel a little bit empowered as to what they can do if they're getting things like bloating, discomfort, cramping, sort of intermittent constipation, diarrhea. What, what do you think would be sort of the next best steps once more serious issues have been ruled out? Yeah, Jamma. So like you said, going to your GP, going going to you essentially is so, so important that people do that as a first step. One, one reason for that is that half a million people are currently living in the UK with undiagnosed celiac disease. So that's an autoimmune disease to gluten. So they're, they're experiencing quite troublesome bloating and, and their bowels may be loose, but also constipation can be uh, one of the symptoms. And actually they're like, oh, I've just got IBS, I'll leave it. And actually they really have celiac disease. So it's so, so important. They go to their GP, get the easy tests, um, you know, before they start tampering with their diet and cutting things out. I think that, that is a really important one because we know if you are continuing to eat gluten and you have celiac disease, you know, that certainly can increase your risk of some things like stomach cancers, etc. So it's really, really important that you get that diagnosis or rule it out. And then, like you said, if you had those tests ruled out and then you're told you have something like irritable bowel syndrome, that certainly is a very common diagnosis. And it's something where the research, we do a lot of research at King's looking at, at irritable bowel syndrome, and it is our understanding of it has just quadrupled over the past two years alone. Um, historically, it was thought that if you had the negative tests and just, you know, a grumpy gut, that was it. You just had a grumpy gut. But now there is a diagnostic criteria that we use for um, irritable bowel syndrome. And that includes you need to, to fulfill that. You need to have stomach pain at least one day a week. Um, and the, that stomach pain needs to be related to pooping in some way, whether it gets better with pooping, worse with pooping. And then the stomach pain has to have occurred for at least six months. So it has to be a chronic condition. And then obviously those other tests need to be ruled out things like celiac disease, et cetera. So that's actually what we use as a diagnosis for irritable bowel syndrome. 
Now, for a lot of people I see um, at the gut health clinic, actually, they they don't have any tummy pain, but they have bloating and constipation. And that's this kind of new area, uh, which is called functional gut disorder. So it's like this umbrella term. And underneath that, you have IBS, but also then you've got functional bloating, functional constipation, and each one has its own diagnostic criteria. So this area, you know, is really starting to be more prescriptive and we're understanding a lot more about it. So people don't just get told to deal with it or put up with it. Um, and we're understanding there is really uh, um, effective evidence-based strategies to help uh, manage those symptoms. So if it's functional constipation, then there is, you know, different strategies that might help with you. So for example, you know, psyllium husk might be uh, something that it's worth looking at with, with obviously with hydration. Actually, for some people with functional constipation, it's more about targeting their gut-brain axis. And essentially, looking at these different evidence-based strategies for each of these different types of functional gut disorders was the reason why I wrote the first book, Eat Yourself Healthy, because it goes into each of those strategies as I would in clinic. Because, you know, the thing is, these conditions affect about 15% of people and, you know, there's not enough dietitians and qualified nutritionists out there, nor GPs, who can actually, you know, go and give all of these interventions. So, I do recommend without being salesy, but people do, if they get those tests ruled out and they are on a waiting list to see a dietitian, which in the UK is often like, you know, six to 12 months, sadly, then it might be worth getting the book. So it's got all these different types of evidence-based strategies that have been shown in clinical trials to help with whether it's bloating, constipation. And, you know, if we want to go through any particular ones, more than happy to, to share the different strategies. But I have essentially these flow diagrams where I get people to kind of go through, try this strategy if that doesn't work, try that one, etc. That sounds really, really important. And as you say, it can be quite frustrating because many people can't really afford to see a dietitian privately. And in the NHS, it's not so easy to access. And also, I love your point about not cutting out large food groups unnecessarily because although we know that if you have celiac disease, it's important to cut out gluten. If you don't, it's really healthy to include lots of whole grains in the diet. There's been a lot of research to show that whole grains are really important for improving longevity and reducing risk of chronic diseases. So definitely worth getting those things ruled out so you can figure out what's going to work well for you. I think certainly from my patient's point of view and what I hear online, bloating is probably one of the big things that people get really concerned about uh, it makes them feel distressed obviously it could change a clothes size when you're feeling really bloated and it's uncomfortable would you have any sort of top tips for people who are feeling bloated to sort of to understand it a bit better or maybe figure out what might they do about it yeah, no, absolutely. Like you said, I do hear it all the time and you probably get it on social media as well as in clinic. Um, bloating is one thing that, you know, it can really impact people's quality of life. Of course, we need to appreciate that we all bloat naturally. So if we have a really large meal, then naturally we're going to get bloated because our stomach is expanded to accommodate for that food. And that is nothing to worry about. But if it's this ongoing continuous bloating that you don't understand why it's happening and you feel like it is impacting your quality of life, then absolutely you deserve to get on top of that. And there is many strategies out there. But you need to start to think about, okay, well, what is the underlying cause of that bloating? So, you know, for some people, it can literally be as simple as they're not chewing their food enough. And that's because we not only start to physically break down the food in our mouth, but actually we contain digestive enzymes in our mouth, which start to chemically break down that food. So if we're not chewing our food at least 15 to 25 times, actually 
in some cases can result in more malabsorption of that nutrition. And for some people, that can be a cause of their bloating. So that would be a really simple strategy. I would get people to trial out for a week. Uh, and they, you know, often in clinic, people laugh at me and go, that is too simple to solve my bloating. But actually, in like 40% of people, that's literally enough to, to get them to a stage where they're like, actually, I, I don't have ongoing bloating anymore. So that's a really simple one. For some people, it might be a case of them having too many of these sugar-free foods. So one type of sugar-free product out there is called sugar alcohol. So xylitol, sorbitol, mannitol, it's in a lot of those sorts of energy bars that are sugar-free, carb-free, etc. And actually what we know about them is that they are not very efficiently absorbed through our digestive tract. And in turn, that can be a major trigger for bloating. So people may have experienced it if they've gone to town and any sugar-free sweets, felt really bloated. That's a reason for that. So just have a look at your diet and check if you're having lots of those sugar alcohols. You know, for some people, actually, they may have a food intolerance. So we know lactose intolerance is, is particularly common in people of Asian and African backgrounds. And if they're having large amounts of milk, or not even large amounts, you know, any more than, you know, 50 mils per sitting, then what happens, they don't have the enzymes needed to break down the milk sugar called lactose. And as a result, that lactose gets malabsorbed and can get into the, the lower part of the intestine and again, trigger some of that bloating. So it's worth just ruling out whether you have a lactose intolerance, which is a super simple thing. Again, in Eat Yourself Healthy, I go through that because it's something you can test at home without having to pay, you know, expensive tests and things like that. And then, you know, for other people, actually, it's not about their diet. It's more about this gut-brain axis. So the two-way communication occurs between your gut and your brain. And if that's really stressed, so you're really stressed up here, what that does is literally strangles your gut. So no matter what you're eating, it really puts a lot of pressure on your digestion. And for some people, the side effect of that is bloating. Other people, uh, there is this medical diagnosed uh, tight pants syndrome. I think in 1997, it appeared in the first medical journal uh, where a physician, uh, a GP like yourself, um, diagnosed it. There was a trend, obviously, high-waisted pants, and he was seeing all these people with tummy pain and bloating, and he said, literally, stop wearing high-waisted pants, undo your belt when you get home, stop wearing your gym gear around, and then their bloating resolved. So again, it's about identifying which is for you, and I can go on and on. I've got about 20 different strategies or things to look out for in the book that I get people to have a think which ones relate to them because everyone's, you know, bloating can be caused by slightly different things. It's about finding the right one for them. Yeah, I love it. And I love how you've sort of broken it down a little bit for people. And I didn't really realize about the artificial sugars in that in that context because you can get them in all sorts of things, can't you? Chewing gum and sweets and bars and yeah, that's a really interesting one. Now this is a bit of a paradox which I'd love for you to help us with. When people aim to eat more plants and they haven't been eating that many, they can then experience more bloating and discomfort, which is not ideal because they're thinking, right, I'm going to improve my gut health by eating more plants. Hold up, hold up. I'm eating more plants and now I feel awful. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, Gemma, that's, that's a big topic in eat more, live well, uh, because here I am asking people to eat more plants. And like you said, they can be get put off. And essentially the reason for that is you know, the backbone of all these plant-based foods is dietary fiber and human cells can't digest that dietary fiber. So actually it gets through most of our nine meter digestive tract undigested and it gets to the final part, the one 1.5 meter part of our digestive tract called the large intestine. 
where most of our gut bacteria live, and they're the ones with the enzymes to break down that fiber. And when they break down that fiber, one of the the natural, safe, totally fine waste products they produce is a bit of gas. So if you go... Are you telling us it's normal to break wind, Megan? You know what? The scientific studies have shown that it's normal. Up to about 20 farts a day is considered normal (laughs) on a high-fiber diet. So don't stress out. But if you're thinking, oh my God, that's enough to put me off... It's really important to know that actually our gut is incredible at adjusting. So that's why when I get people to start increasing more plants, they need to do it quite slowly. And the reason for that is actually your gut lining becomes better at absorbing that gas and therefore that gas gets into your blood and you actually start to breathe it out instead of it coming out the back end and having the breaking of the wind, which for some people can be socially awkward if they're unable to hold it in and things like that. And also some loose poops and stuff. So it is really important to just, you know, start to increase your fiber intake by like half a serve a week. And then, you know, over the over the space of around three months, people then can really achieve their ultimate fiber goals. And that really is the best way to to become more plant-based. You don't need to go 100% plant-based for the optimal gut health. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that, but um, to really get kind of those gut health goals without having some of those side effects uh, that can put people off. Absolutely. I'm always saying to my patients that it's completely normal to break wind. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's Shouldn't a sign feel of embarrassed. A I know. I, people need to be like, you know what? It's a sign of a well-fed gut microbiota community. So I'm just doing my thing, feeding them, keeping them happy. It's, yeah. And they're just letting you know. That's exactly. all it is. <laughs> oh, that's a really uh, important point. So thank you for sharing that. What about beans and lentils and chickpeas? I've been telling people for a while that it's quite a good idea if you're new to them, to especially uh, to, to to give them a nice rinse if you've got them from a from a carton or a can already pre-prepared. And if you're cooking them yourself, it's a great idea to soak them for several hours first and then rinse them before you cook them. Would you be able to talk a bit more about why that might help with bloating if you're new to these uh, plant? Based proteins. Yeah, they're great strategies. And the reason for that is that these legumes are actually a really good source of prebiotics. So I spoke at the start about prebiotics and probiotics. Prebiotics, so P-R-E-biotic, essentially is the food for the good bacteria. And most prebiotics are types of dietary fiber. Now, legumes is actually a really good source of prebiotics. And for those who love getting into the details, it's called galacto-oligosaccharides, is the type of prebiotic in them. And we know that that is actually water-soluble. So that's why we do recommend to triple rinse your beans if you are having the canned ones, um, because that actually gets rid of some of those prebiotics. So actually, you know, when you your gut's adjusted to that, it's good to, I mean, you still rinse them a little bit because it gets some rid of the anti-nutrients. Um, but you don't need to go crazy on the rinsing because actually you want to maintain some of those prebiotics. But when you are new to it, as you said, if you triple rinse it, some of that GOS, so the galactoligosaccharide, the prebiotic actually gets drained away and it allows your gut to more, you know, at a lower dose start to get used to these prebiotic foods. But if you've got a really sensitive gut, so people with IBS, you know, I often hear them avoiding completely legumes forever and they say, there's no way, they just don't agree with me. But I have seen, you know, thousands of patients over the past decade as a dietitian and I have never met a gut, no matter how sensitive, that can't learn 
to start to more efficiently deal with these legumes and get to a place where actually they can include them in their diet. But it's a case of literally over a, over a period of time, having starting with like one tablespoon of chickpeas each day and then building that up to really teach your gut to metabolize that more effectively. And that helps to build up those gut bug sort of populations that are then used to those kinds of foods, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that brings me nicely onto thinking about two other topics, which are really hot right now in gut health. You mentioned about how some people, especially if you're having IBS and and sometimes bloating because of legumes is a trigger, they may decide to go on a keto diet or in a more extreme form, maybe even a carnivore diet. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that's a good idea if somebody is is sort of sensitive to FODMAP type foods or is it is it sort of not a good idea long term? Yeah, look, the research has shown that if you are going on these quite restrictive diets like the keto diet where you're actually cutting out some important plant-based food groups, actually it does reduce the diversity of your gut bacteria. And what we ultimately want to achieve is a more diverse range of gut bacteria because each different bacteria actually has different skills and does different things for the body. So those who have more different types of bacteria seem to have better, not just gut health, but overall health because they've got like more superpowers within them, I like to think. So we really want to harness this diverse range of gut bacteria. Now, there actually is some good clinical evidence for a specific diet called the low FODMAP diet. Gemma, I'm sure as, as a GP, you've heard that mentioned quite some time. And at King's College in London, we do a lot of research looking at the low FODMAP diet in irritable bowel syndrome. And essentially what it is, is a four, a three-step diet um, where people would see a dietitian. Uh, they would restrict their these types of fermentable carbohydrates. Most of them are prebiotics, actually. So things like that, galacto-oligosaccharide is one of these FODMAPs. So they would cut them out of their diet for only four weeks. So essentially it gives their gut a little bit of rest. Then they move on to the second stage, and that's when we go through this re systematic reintroduction. And that is so, so important because not just my research group, many research groups around the world have shown that if you stay on the low-format diet for too long, actually it has that effect like the keto diet reduces some of those beneficial gut bacteria. So it's really important to reintroduce. And then the third step is this personalization stage. Now, actually in um, Eat More, Live Well, I have developed what I call this FODMAP light approach because the scientific study that are looking at the low FODMAP diet have all been done in a clinical setting. I think there's about 15 studies and they've all been almost, I think about 90% have been delivered by a dietitian because we know that actually it's a very complex diet. It's not one you can just Google because the data out there is not very accurate. So they have to get these special resources, et cetera. But of course, like we mentioned, it, you know, it, seeing a dietitian is not accessible for all. So I developed what I would call, I called the FODMAP light approach, which is just a gentle approach to that. So what it does is just restricts, again, just for a short period of time to give your gut that little bit of rest, these higher prebiotic fermentable foods. And what I, I see in, you know, probably about 60% of people in clinic is actually that is enough to achieve symptom benefit. They don't need to go the full really strict diet uh, and therefore that's less likely to do damage to their gut bacteria. So yeah, if, if people are interested in that, definitely check that out as a more gentle approach versus going on these extreme diets, which we know is not good um, in the medium or long term for their gut health. Yeah, that's really great advice. And it's an interesting one because I see that generally 
the way we live our lives and the things that we eat and sometimes the treatments that we receive from our doctors can affect our gut health. You know, antibiotics is the biggest thing I'm thinking about. You know, we eat them when we eat factory farmed foods and we consume them when we need to, when we're given some by our doctors. How could people sort of help to protect their gut, if you like, from, from the antibiotics that we know are doing a great job? They're there to kill off bugs that we don't want hanging around, but they also could potentially kill off some of the bugs that we do want. Is there a way for people to feel as though they, they can improve their gut health if they, if they need antibiotics? Yeah, so this brings up the probiotic. So probiotic is alive microorganisms. Now, I think probiotics have, have, is an area that's been very much misunderstood where, you know, one week the media is saying everyone should take a probiotic. The next week they're saying don't take a probiotic, they're a waste of money. What we see in the research is that each different type of probiotic actually does different things for the body. Um, and it makes sense because each different bacteria has got different skills. So actually, um, this Cochrane Review, which is a body of evidence where it pulls together all the individual studies, have actually found that if you need to go on antibiotics for whatever reason, then there is really good evidence to take a specific probiotic during your antibiotic course and then for a week after. And I talk about the, the seven areas where there's actually really good evidence to take a specific probiotic. So I talk about this in Eat Yourself Healthy, these probiotic prescriptions, which I've got my colleagues at King's to kind of review and, and confirm that they would recommend that. So an example for antibiotic, uh, if you have to go on antibiotics, so it's to reduce your risk of antibiotic-associated diarrhea, which affects around 30% of people. So the type of probiotic that is recommended is called Saccharomyces boulardii or Lactobacillus rhamnus GG. So you take one or the other. You would take it at 5 billion units throughout your antibiotic period and for that week after. Now, it is very prescriptive, but that's the way we need to treat probiotics if we want their clinical benefit. Now, if you've been on antibiotics, then the research suggests then it's, you know, it's too late, you didn't take any probiotic. Then actually the research suggests that it's not worth taking a probiotic. What's really key is just adding that plant-based diversity into your diet. So re-nourishing, re-fertilizing the bacteria that are there. Uh, and, you know, for some people, it might take up to a year for the bacteria all to regenerate. But for most people by, you know, around six months, the studies suggest that their bacteria can regenerate. Obviously, it depends on the course duration of the antibiotics, you know, how the different types of antibiotics, etc. Yeah. But I think people shouldn't, you know, I see people in clinic where they ignore their doctor's advice because they're so fearful of antibiotics. But as you know, obviously, you know, Gemma, they, they can save lives. So they can be important if your doctor really says you need to take it, you should take it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a double-edged sword, as you say. Antibiotics have increased our overall lifespan and that's a really important intervention. Yeah. But at the same time, we are so much more aware now of our gut health. And I, I'm thinking especially of of people who've been having to take uh, antibiotics for long periods of time for acne and for recurrent urine infections are the two things that, that pop into my mind that I have patients that ostensibly been on antibiotics for for years sometimes and I think it's it's really tough in, in those sorts of circumstances because you you know you're sort of starting from a slightly uh, more depleted canvas yeah no absolutely i mean there hasn't been a whole lot of research looking at those sorts of um antibiotics like erythromycin in the long term what the you know the three month six month effects are on the gut bacteria but 
certainly what I see anecdotally in clinic is that if people really are trying to nourish their gut health. So I talk about this concept of plant-based diet diversity. So that's trying to include not just more fruit and veg, but actually we have these, I call them the super six, and it includes your whole grains, your nuts and seeds, your fruit, your veg, your legumes, your beans and pulses and your herbs and your spices. So all of those six, if people are getting in something from each of them, you know, every day if they can, then that is thought to be enough to really, you know, maximize the the bacteria that are there and probably reduce any of those negative effects that could be occurring with that antibiotic. Mm, great. Thank you. So that's, that's your super six. And in your books, do you talk about plant points? I do. I do. Um, now, this was just something I, I just started because I talked to my little nephew about how many plant points he's had. But essentially, the concept uh, has come from you know a, a research study which showed that people who ate at least 30 different types of plants per week had better gut health than those who had just the same 10 on repeat. And actually that research was really quite important because what it showed is actually you don't necessarily need to go 100% plant-based um, to have good gut health. They compared vegans, so those who are 100% plant-based versus those who are omnivores, so did eat some animal products. And what they showed the biggest predictor of gut health was actually the diversity of plants. Now, I totally understand why people want to go 100% plant-based for animal cruelty religious, environmental reasons, so totally understand that. But if we're just thinking about the, the science around gut health, because we know that things like oily fish, the omega-3, are thought to be linked with better gut health, you know, it doesn't seem necessary to go 100% plant-based. It's this diversity concept. So I set people a target of trying to get in at least 30 different types a week, and that's what Eat More Live Well really touches on the simple hacks of how you can get to your 30 without any extra cost or effort. So some examples, you know, instead of just getting the broccoli, the steamed broccoli, get the steamed multi-pack of veg because each different type of plant actually contains different types of chemicals, which then feed different types of gut bacteria. And like I said, the more different types of gut bacteria we think means you've got better gut health and overall health. So more diverse diet equals more diverse gut bacteria, which means more skills in you, which is overall better health. Yeah, that's a great tip, I think, because... I think it's it's true for most of us. We'll get in a little rut, won't we? We'll have the same online shop or we'll have our routines when we go to the shops and we'll think, right, well, the kids like carrots and I can manage to get a broccoli, you know, floret or two in them. And, you know, they like apples and we tend to buy bananas. And so there's these sort of set fruits and veggies that you know that the family are going to like. But what you're saying is, use a little bit of time to think about well, how else can I add more in which won't necessarily impact my budget too much but will allow my gut to thrive. Exactly. And people will be surprised that actually there are many products on the market, you know, at their local supermarkets at no extra cost that actually contain these different types of, for example, grains like quinoa and buckwheat, farika, all these other types that people have thought, you know, come with a really high price tag or are really hard to cook. Actually, they're on the shelf and that, you know, some of them you can get the packs where they've got seven different types in it and actually take 10 minutes to cook, just like rice. So it's about, you know, spending an extra 10 minutes walking down the aisle and having a look at plant diversity where you can. Brilliant. And what about mock meats? You know, the plant-based mock meats, do they vary in their quality? And are they something that you think would be good for gut health or, or make no difference? 
Yeah, I mean, mock meets is a really interesting one, and I absolutely understand the reason for them, for convenience, helping people, you know, choose more plant-based foods. However, we do know that if you can have more of the whole plant-based foods, uh, so for example, instead of getting the soybean patty, you actually make your own chickpea burgers. Uh, I do it all the time, literally takes 15 minutes to make, and then you can make them in bulk and freeze them, so they're always in the freezer. We know that the less processing of the plants means they've got more beneficial plants chemicals and therefore are likely to feed more of your gut bacteria. The other thing um, I have to say with the mock meats is that I've noticed quite a few of them, again, not all of them, but quite a few of them are loaded with different types of food additives in it. And that's because when they're taking out some of the animal protein, they need binders and they need something to kind of mush it together that the animal fat used to do. And my research team at King's is actually looking and reinvestigating some types of food additives based on pilot data, which has suggested that for some people who are more genetically predisposed to gut issues, for example, inflammatory bowel disease may actually do worse with certain types of food additives. Um, and the whole food additive world, I think, is currently under review because there is like 400 different types regarded as safe. So GRAS, generally regarded as safe, were actually that was based on studies which just looked at how they impacted human metabolism. And now, because we've realized actually the gut bacteria metabolism is also so important for health. They're doing a lot of retesting to see how they're impacting our gut bacteria. Uh, so I think this whole area of food additives and these ultra-processed foods is really going to be coming to the forefront over the next couple of years as that research comes out. Oh, it's so fascinating. Uh, I've, yeah, things like, you're talking about things like polysorbate 80 and carrageenan, yeah, exactly. these sort of uh, names of things that you read. Yeah. Emulsifiers, mm -hmm. things that make things taste maybe more creamy. Um, that mouthfeel, that, yeah, that, the binders, yeah. thickness. And they're in a lot of plant-based milks as well, the carrageenan. Mm. I've seen it. I've seen it in certain yogurts and milks. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want to be scaremongering because we do need the big clinical trials, which we're currently running at the moment. And, you know, they take many years to get the results and then publish the results. Um, so I don't want to, you know, say, oh, if you have any, it's going to devastate your gut health. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially if you have inflammatory bowel disease, you know, like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, it may it may make the difference between, well, maybe a flare up and not. We we don't know. We we're obviously waiting for that data. It's really interesting. I I read a study recently about there was a type there was a brand of mock meat that was they looked at the microbiome differences. I think it was a crossover study, and they found that actually there were more of the beneficial gut microbes in the people who sort of swapped out their normal sources of meat proteins with this particular brand of mock meat and that overall it seemed to be more beneficial for the microbiome but as you say they all vary in their ingredients and sometimes they you know they might be high in salt and that's not great for blood pressure and <laughs> things like that yeah. so it, it's it's a little bit of a minefield at the moment but I guess my overarching takeaway from that is we have to firstly use food as a way of, of um, enjoying life, you know, but also thinking about, well, if we want to improve our gut health, what are these sort of simple, easy wins? And more plants is always great. So as you say, chickpea burgers are fantastic, bean burgers. And if you enjoy them, all the better, because you know that you're doing something that's great for gut health, um, as well as as well as hopefully for your taste buds as, as well. Yeah. And I mean, I certainly do see anecdotally in clinic, the more plants people start to introduce, actually, 
the more their taste buds change to to start to you know crave them and enjoy them and you know crave less of the the processed foods maybe perhaps they used to really enjoy and I've I've got some really fun case studies where I share in the book about when my clients obviously uh, shared with approval where he loved the devilish golden arches um, on his way home from A and E when he worked as a as a, a medic there and but actually after introducing more plants slowly he then one day had it again and was like I'm so disappointed I don't I don't get that buzz from that Big Mac anymore so you know your taste buds can change is a really important concept oh yeah I've seen that with my patients time and again I mentioned that yeah. in my book as well <laughs> exactly the same thing because it's uh, so they, important people understand right yeah they were eating like they were they were actually really looking forward to having this burger that they'd been sort of you know fantasizing about for about two or three weeks and and then they they, t- they had it and they thought oh that didn't taste as good anymore <laughs> So, um, but that's a good thing. Obviously, our tastes change, and it's great to be able to enjoy these delicious and nutritious things. So that's wonderful. I mean, in terms of your own dietary sort of proclivities, are you always eating gut healthy foods, or from time to time do you diverge into less healthy options? <laughs> no, this is a, a great question, and you know, to be honest, there is not anything in my diet that I kind of restrict. So I love white chocolate you know, and I'm going to completely own that. But what I I do when I have white chocolate, I came up with this recipe at Easter when I was actually doing my PhD because I was like, you know, white chocolate is just my taste buds, super selfish. My gut bacteria aren't getting any fun from that because there's no, you know, polyphenols or fiber in, in the white chocolate. So what I did is thought, okay, how can I turn this white chocolate into a prebiotic food? So I added prebiotics from dried mango and pistachios, added some extra virgin olive oil, which contain these other plant chemicals and drizzled it with dark chocolate. And actually, it not only tastes better, but I've turned kind of that selfish treat that's all about the taste buds into one that still, you know, is amazing. And I'll have to send you the recipe, so see if yeah. you like it. I think um, you should definitely send it to me because I'm envisaging shop-bought white chocolate drizzled with olive oil and it doesn't sound too good. <laughs> Trust me, I, I've trialed and tested it with a lot, a lot of people and it takes like five minutes to make. Yeah, and I turned it into a food that actually also treats my gut bacteria. So that's kind of my philosophy around food is that I would never say, oh, I'm not having any cake. It's about, hey, why can't I get some carrots or some plants into that cake? So it's a joy for my bacteria as well as my my taste buds. I love it. it. It should be. I mean, they're looking after us. Why not look after them? Exactly. I love it. You have to send me that recipe. Well, <laughs> good. Well, we've we've covered so much ground. I'm. I feel it's been great because there are so many things that people sort of tend to suffer from in silence or feel like maybe it's too embarrassing to talk about as well when it comes to gut health. You've shared things that can help us make some easy wins to make a more diverse diet. And also some sort of quick, easy hacks if we are suffering. Like you mentioned psyllium husk for constipation and making sure that you drink in plenty of water as well with that. Is there any other top tips that you can give us moving forward that, you know, that we haven't covered? Yeah, I think an important one when we think about gut health is that it's not just about diet. So certainly uh, when I see patients in clinic, they they were like, okay, I just want to focus on diet. Give me the diet. I'm like, you know what? No matter how perfect your gut-boosting diet is, if you're super stressed, not sleeping enough and not moving your body, then you're not going to have good gut health. And the reason for that is these, these are living organisms within us. So if we're really stressed up here, like I said, it strangles the gut, that stresses them out. If we're not getting enough sleep, they also have a circadian rhythm, their sleep-wake cycle. 
So if ours is disturbed, theirs is disturbed, and we all know what it's like to be sleep deprived, very uh, inefficient and can get quite angry. And then the other one around movement. So studies have shown independent of diet, moving our body actually can increase the diversity of gut bacteria. So not just our muscles get a buzz out of it, but our gut bacteria too. So I think it's worth people thinking about those other three domains to gut health and not just fixate on only diet. Yeah, that's really important. And it's amazing the knock-on effects it can have in all sorts of areas of our life. And I love how you described it. You know, we've literally got billions of little friends helping us out who rely on us, an entire galaxy of little beings that are there, not only, you know, just because we exist, but also helping us to exist in a sort of optimal way. So it's lovely to think about how we can look after them as much as they look after us. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit corny, but I mean, the science oh, no, I is love there. It. <laughs> if we look after them, you know, they will look after us in terms of mental health, longevity, people, the sanitarians, those who live to 100 years plus, have a different type of gut bacteria profile than those who don't. Um, so we, we know it's so, so important. So it's just about getting that message out there, isn't it, Gemma? It is. It is. And, you know, as this is called the wellness edit, I feel compelled to ask you, do you feel as though there are some like wellness things that you do that, or that you feel like, you know, you really aim to do daily or regularly to help you feel your best? Yeah. You know what? I'm, I think that one of the key things is that I start my day with my overnight fermented oats. It, there is just, obviously it tastes great as well, but there is something about knowing that I'm treating my gut bacteria, starting the day right. Yeah. There's just something about that. So it, it's super easy to make. I use my Biome uh, porridge mix, but you can make your own porridge mix, whether you want to put carrot in there, you know, dates, um, obviously your oats, you know, whatever, whatever seeds and nuts you want to add in there. And then what you do is add um, some kefir because kefir has got the live microorganisms. And then you just leave it out on the bench. And what it does is the bacteria and the yeast um, from the kefir overnight actually start to break down and, and ferment those oats and the other um, types of ingredients you put in it. And in the morning, you'll notice there's a few little bubbles and it's created such an incredible flavor, as well as added in some extra of these, these chemicals that the bacteria produce when they start to ferment foods that have been linked with, with better health. So People should definitely, um, definitely try that, but it, it certainly is one of my favorites. But then also outside of diet, I do really try to prioritize 10 minutes of, um, mindfulness because of relaxing that gut brain axis. And that really does kind of get me in the right frame of mind. So yeah, that's what I do. That sounds wonderful. I'm just thinking about the importance of that sort of mindfulness piece as well. It's tough sometimes, isn't it, to find the time to prioritise that because our lives can get so busy. Yeah, with kids, you know, exactly. I do. I've got two sons and, you know, when, when they're with me, it's always feeling like I'm on the go. So it's a lovely reminder to actually look after my gut by looking after my mind. So thank you for that. And I'm sure many listeners will really enjoy at least implementing perhaps one or two of those tips that would really resonate with them today. And I loved hearing about you growing up on a farm and coming sort of full circle with all of your research. I actually, little known fact about me, I actually spent some time growing up on a pig farm. No way. And, or, yeah. And, you know, my father would look after them. And I also spent some time in India, you know, when I was very young, we lived there and we were living in the villages and I'd be 
literally scrabbling around in the dirt all the time and you know living on the farm I feel like I've probably got quite a good start there you know with with all of that extra bacteria that I was exposed to in my youth and it's lovely to hear that you had something similar with your childhood like growing up on a farm it must have been really great for your microbes right yeah, well, I mean, we, we do have the data, so not just anecdotally, but people who do grow up on farms seem to have lower risk of allergies, uh, and that's linked to the gut bacteria. So we're exposed to more different types of bacteria, which is really important for training our immune system, particularly in the first 100, 100 1,000 days of life, so early on. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure you, you probably a testament to quite a low risk of getting sick would you say Gemma are you in line with that evidence oh yes I mean yeah. not to brag but I very yeah. rarely get sick <laughs> <laughs> now obviously we can't all grow up on farms um, and we don't need to like for example my little son I'm kind of like I feel guilty because I live in London and I'm like I'm not giving him the best start but hey there's all the other things that I can do you know take him to, to the forest you know every couple of days, you know, plant diversity in his diet, um, breastfeeding when you can, all of those sorts of things. So don't feel like, you know, Gem and I are showing off by <laughs> growing yes. up on farms. Oh, look at us, we're, we're on the farm now. Exactly, I'm not on a farm now. And, exactly. And, you know, you're right, urban environments are not as good for our microbes, but there's loads of things we can do. The park, you know, even sort of having a grassy area somewhere where you're just kind of walking around, breathing it in. And it's great. It's great for your bugs all over your body, skin and in your lungs and in your guts. So yeah, there's lots you can do. Um, fantastic. Well, I think that's probably going to be where we draw this to a close. I really, really appreciate your time, your expertise, your fantastic top tips. And uh, if people want to learn more, we, we've discussed your porridge, we've discussed your books. Is there any way that they could get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, at thegutheathdoctor.com. Um, so website or, you know, social media at the Gut Health Doctor, you know, send me a DM. I will try my hardest. I do get quite a lot. Um, but if there's anything specific, you know, send it to the, um, to the website and we will try and get back to you as soon as possible. Thank you so much for your time today, Megan. It was an absolute joy. Likewise, Gemma. Thank you so much for joining me today. Wasn't Megan absolutely fantastic? I loved her science-based approach, but also her compassion and those practical tips that she gave us. I'll definitely be putting some of them into action. And uh, yeah, what did you think? Did you enjoy it? Let us know. Please do leave your comments. It matters so much to us. And if you did think that someone else would benefit, remember to share this episode, maybe do a screenshot, share it on social media and tag Megan. I'm sure she'd love to hear how you benefited from this conversation now remember you can find all the episodes of the wellness edit on your favorite podcast platform and via the holland and barrett website at hollandandbarrett.com all views are those of our guests and not holland and barrett unless explicitly stated otherwise any reference to brands and or products should not be considered as an endorsement